But Hebrews chapter 11. And I want you to notice again, verse 13, an interesting perspective on how believers are able to navigate all the waters of life here. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. Now, folks, just think about that statement concerning the promises of God. It says they saw them, but it says they saw them, quote, afar off. In other words, they saw them when they couldn't see them. Hyperopia, farsightedness, means that you can see things very clearly that are far away. I can see that the clock back there, I can see it clearly. It says 1123, about an hour and a half before we're finished this morning, 1123. (laughs) However, if you put the same clock out in the parking lot, maybe not. Put the clock out on Indian Town Road, or better yet, put it 59 miles north of here in Vero Beach, there's no way I can see it. You cannot see something that is that far away. Unless, of course, you're Abraham or Noah. And what you're looking at is really, really far away. Notice verse 10. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Well, that's a lot farther than Vero Beach. Only a little further than Pensacola. Amen, if you drive there, that drive. And yet it says they saw it. In fact, I'm not sure if you've ever noticed this, but this chapter is pretty much saturated with the idea of seeing and looking. Notice the last three words of verse 1, of things not seen. You see that? Things not seen. Verse 3, the last line, so that things which are seen. Verse 7, by faith Noah being warned of God of things, quote, not seen seen our text of course says having seen them afar off and then you'll notice verse 27 the last line says as seeing him who is invisible wait seeing him who is invisible i mean not only did abraham see things that were quote afar off but it says moses somehow he saw something that is in invisible which means you can't see it. Here's Webster's definition of invisible. Not perceptive by vision, unable to be seen. Wait a minute, Webster's not finished. Incapable by nature of being seen. I want to speak this morning on the subject, I spy something gold. Let's pray. Father, please help us this morning. We know, Father, that there are many needs in this room and people have burdens and questions and doubts and fears. Some in this room are on a mountaintop. But all of us, Father, need to hear from your word and from you. So please, please help us to that end. Please, in Jesus' name, amen. Most of you here, I'm sure, are very familiar with a little game you call with your children called I Spy. Right? It's a simple game where typically it's played in the car. Maybe, maybe it's a road game. And somebody would choose something within their sight and either say, I spy something with the letter C, and like the cl- they would guess the clock, or they would say, I spy something, and then you'd pick a color. I spy something red. And they'd say, 
the state of Florida. Okay? <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> I Spy, it actually comes from a 19th century children's book called I Spy With My Little Eye. I actually heard seen people play it that way and I always thought it was weird. I Spy With My Little Eye. Okay, whatever. Well, years ago, I preached a funeral message up in Port St. Lucie. And typically, some of the family members, in this case, came up and they gave testimonials and testimonies and so forth. And one of those was the man's daughter. And she said that when her father was in hospice, the grandkids were all over visiting. And in the course of the time passing by, one of them started to play I Spy. One child said, I spy something white, and it was a little girl's shoes. And I spy something blue, it was a flower pot over there on the table. It went on for a while, and it was the youngest girl's turn, and she said, I spy something gold. And she was very pleased with herself because nobody could guess. And they picked pick a couple of yellow things, and someone picked silver. And they gave up finally, and she said, I spy the golden streets, Grandpa. And the other siblings objected and said, no, 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 you can't. It doesn't count. You have to see it. And her grandpa spoke up and said, no, she's right. I see it too. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. There are three things that I want us to consider this morning about what we as believers see and don't see in this world. Three lessons in the text. The first most obvious one, number one, is a lesson of faith. Look at verse one. It begins with now faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things what? Not seen. Wow. That's faith. You know, when the Apostle Paul explained to the Corinthians how and why he was able to continue in his journey as an apostle, why he didn't quit, and even though he was cast down, he said he nevertheless was not destroyed. Why he said he was perplexed, but not in despair. You may remember his answer. He said, because we look not at the things which are seen. Now, folks, what does that mean? Of all of the things the Apostle Paul ever put down on paper, it seems to me that that's one of the most impossible. And the reason is, obviously, in the physical sense, it is impossible. What I see this morning with my eyeballs are not invisible things. I see the visible. I see this pulpit of wood, but I don't see the throne of God. I see fellow believers, young, middle-aged, a lot of aging fellow believers. I don't see glorified saints. I see carpet and drywall, not jasper and golden streets. I see Brother Terry over here, not the angel Gabriel. Do you realize what a great disappointment that is? <laughs> Come to church and and he greets me instead of the Lord. I come to see the Lord. That's a bait and switch. The ultimate bait and switch is church. But seriously, the definition of verse 1 has got to be the hardest thing in the Christian life to grasp. How do you see things that are invisible instead of seeing things that are visible and right in front of you? You know, the Scripture talks about the outward man and the inward man. I look at Brother Remo back there and I see the outward man. That's what I see with my eyes. 
When we became friends some 35 years ago, his hair was dark and mine existed. (laughs) I see the outward man, but I don't see the inward man. And of course, what Paul described in his testimony in convincing the Corinthians wasn't hyperbole, it wasn't fantasy, it was the reason that he called all of his incredible trials, quote, light afflictions. So that the Holy Spirit did not inspire Paul and the Hebrew writer here, which is probably Paul in our text, to pin their own true testimony for just hyperbole. It's true. We look at things which are seen. Look at verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them, the promises, afar off. But again, how? How is this even possible? Well, I mentioned Paul. We talked, Brother Chris and I talked about this in my office a moment ago. He had one advantage over us. He described it in 2 Corinthians 2. Paul was taken up to heaven, remember? Unlike any of us, the Apostle Paul was taken up into the presence of God. He died, he came back, and he only spoke about it one time. He only spoke about it that one time 14 years after it took place. But he saw things. He saw things he couldn't speak about. And he saw them with his own eyes, that which is invisible to us. So yeah, I'm going to say, we're going to say, that's an advantage. But that's not the key to our text. Noah, Abraham, Moses, Rahab, David, all of those listed here, they were not taken up into heaven. They did not get a glimpse of glory beforehand. So that, folks, this is something that all of us in this room are called and can learn to do by faith in the promise of God. Pastor Howe. I want you to think about the distinction that the Bible makes between seeing and seeing with looking. Verse 10, it says, look at it, for he looked for. Abraham looked for a city which hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. Now, wait a minute. Remember the verse that I quoted earlier about Paul's defense and explanation to the Corinthians. He said, we look not at the things which are seen. We look not at the things which are seen. And again, that is a reminder that there's a distinction. There is a difference between just seeing something and looking at something. Paul didn't say we see not the things which are seen. He says we don't look at them. This word look is translated mark, especially here in Hebrews. It's translated mark in the New Testament. Mark them which are unruly, for example. What it literally means is to take note, to put a notch, if you will, in your belt. So temporarily, we see things. The temporal things that you see, don't look at them. Don't mark them. Don't notch them. You got a trophy one time for doing this or that. Great, but don't look at it. You see it, don't look to it. It's temporal. However, God answers your prayer. God empowers you with grace to go through some trial or blessing. God teaches you a truth out of His Word while you're reading in the quietness of your own devotions. Look at that. Mark it. Look at the things which are eternal. Don't look at the things that are temporal. Let me illustrate it this way. I remember in the fall of 1982, at that time, I was in Chicago. I was headed back to school, went back to school to work on my master's degree, and it was after already serving two years in a very fruitful, blessed ministry up in Michigan. I didn't want to go back to school. 
And for the life of me, I couldn't get a job. There was a huge recession, you may remember, in 1982. Unemployment was 16.3%. It's hard to get a job anywhere. And so unemployed, unable to make ends meet, we just had a baby named Ricky. I was pretty fretful about things. And then in October of that year, there was a football game. It was a football game between the Wisconsin Badgers and Michigan State. Badger Stadium in in Madison, Wisconsin, was packed out, 60,000 loyal fans. And at first, Michigan was beating Wisconsin pretty bad. They were clearly the better team, so that the Wisconsin fans had nothing, really little to cheer about. It was indeed very quiet. But every now and then, inexplicably, everybody in the stands would burst into cheers and applause. If you watched it on television, it was kind of, kind of weird, bizarre, out of place. And finally, one of the announcers on television figured it out. 70 miles away from that stadium, the Milwaukee Brewers were beating the St. Louis Cardinals in Game 3 of the World Series. So here's all these, these Wisconsin fans, and they have little radios. And all they were doing was responding to what was happening at another game, a bigger game, a more important game than what was in front of them. So you see, they were, they were cheering and joyful about an invisible to their eyes, an invisible victory. And in 1982, I eventually realized that I was spiritually simply looking at the wrong place. I was looking at the wrong game and the wrong team and the wrong scoreboard and the wrong field. Pastor, don't you see what is happening in the American electorate in this country? Don't you see the injustices and the inequities in this world? Yes, I do. Pastor, do you not see the folly of men who sit on thrones? Yes, we see it, but let's not look to it. Let's not look at it. It's looking at the wrong scoreboard. Here's our scoreboard. Revelation 19, and I looked, and I looked, and behold, a lamb stood on Mount Zion. And I beheld and I heard their voice, the voice, the numbers of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. You see, beloved, people without faith in the word of God and the promises of God. These are the believers who will always live in their carnal. All they see, all they see is what they look to. And they look to greed and envy and anger and fear and lust and ambition and pride and hate. People of faith. All the ones listed in this chapter. Well, they can see all of that. But their faith looks towards something else. It is what the Bible calls the eternal weight of glory. Things like goodness and grace and peace and justice and truth and mercy and life and forgiveness and hope and love and heaven itself. Let me ask you a question. How is it possible that a man like Moses, who was pampered, a prince in Egypt, grew up with the finest clothes, the finest food, the finest education, Basically an engineer. He was, really, he, was, he was given the best that life had to offer from the greatest world empire ever. How is it that this man 
could turn his back on all of the riches and glory, the luxury, all the security of that world empire, how was he ever able to stand up against the threats of death and torture from the Pharaoh and choose instead a life of deprivation and wandering in a wilderness? Well, look at verse 27. By faith, he, Moses, forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. Why? For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. In other words, by faith, Moses saw Jesus. Oh yeah, I know. He saw Pharaoh in the rearview mirror. Of course he did. But he was looking to the Lord Jesus in the path before him. You know, beloved, I want you to hear this carefully because there is a difference. There's a difference in believers, even in this room today and are listening where you are, and it's a vast difference. And the difference is not that some Christians suffer and others don't. The difference is not that some Christians sorrow and some don't, that some believers have trials and some believers don't. That's not the difference. Because all of us are sinners and all of us live in this fallen, sinful world. However, there's a great difference in how Christians in this room perceive all of those things in the world. The vast difference between those who call things like high taxes and humidity a great trial of affliction. Who call a flat tire persecution. And Paul, who called shipwreck Stoning, hunger, jail, robbery, as we noted a moment ago, he called them all a light affliction. Across the page, I want you to look at chapter 10. You see what it says in verse 34? We preached on this not too long ago. It says, for you had compassion of me and my bonds. And you, 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 you took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. They took your things, your lands, your homes. You took joyfully that? Why? Knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and enduring substance. Amen. One of my favorite missionaries, as as most of you know, is Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson was born in a preacher's home in 1788. And when he went to college, he, like a lot of young people going off to college, he started to rebel. Unfortunately, he acquired a friend who became his best friend. His best friend in college was a deist. And you know what he did? He, this man, young man who never trusted Christ, he encouraged Justin to doubt the Scriptures, to doubt what had been told and taught all of his life. One night while traveling home from school to be with his parents, Justin stopped to spend the night at an inn. He couldn't sleep, however, because all night long in the room next to him and he heard wailing and crying sort of excruciating sounds. And it kept him awake. The sort of moanings of a man. The next morning, Judson inquired of the innkeeper what was happening in the room next to him. And the innkeeper told the young student that the man next to him was dying. He had a fever. The doctors recalled there was nothing they could do, and he was dying, and he knew he was dying, and he was losing his breath with every hour. And he was terrified of eternity. That's why he was crying out. 
Just then they brought the man out, and now lying dead, he was recognized by Adoniram Judson as his friend from college. And he saw him, and he went to his room, and he fell on his knees. He returned home, and he wept to his parents about his foolishness, about his rebellion, and, and asked them and God for forgiveness. He went back to classes, but with a new vision. He became America's very first foreign missionary. The first missionary ever sent out of the United States. Probably the greatest missionary because of so many he inspired to follow him. Adoniram's call to reach souls in India, then Burma. All but guaranteed a life of hardship, a life of opposition. He was fluent in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. It still took him three years of intense study, 12 hours every single day to learn the Burmese language. And the entire time in 1813, he's isolated from his family and his friends back in America. On the ship across the Atlantic, his wife miscarried their first child. When they finally got there, he built a zayat. It was a hut, a bamboo hut. In April of 1819, he had his first meeting, and three months later, a 35-year-old timber worker down from the hill tribes came and accepted Christ. It was his first profession of faith. All you have to do is do the math. That's six years, six years of labor. Six years of serving and working and laboring in a disease-ridden jungle for one convert. People back in America, many of them are like, why are we doing this? In 12 years, he had 14 professions of faith. During that whole time, he was able to translate the Bible in Burmese. In 1823, there was famine, there was hunger, and led to the Anglo-Burmese War that some of you know about in history, and that led also to his imprisonment. He was imprisoned there with some POWs, infamous vermin-ridden death camp at Aoa. All of the POWs from Great Britain died. He was left alone. He was there for two years. His wife, Anne, one of the godliest women in all of Christian history, as far as I'm concerned. This dear lady went from place to place to place trying to secure his release. She nursed a little baby who was born a few days after Judson's imprisonment. After 21 months of her witnessing alone, going around, disease, loneliness, fever, she died October of 1826. And their third child died six months later. When the Burmese army collapsed, Justin was released. And instead of going home in his grief to America, he remained in Burma for 40 years. We support a national missionary in Burma, as you all know, Myanmar it's called today. His name is Zam, sweetest, godliest young man I've ever known. Zam will tell you that it was because of the ministry of Adoniram Judson 180 years before, it was because of that that he himself was the fruit. Hundreds and hundreds of missionaries have gone out of America because of his testimony. His biography is titled, The Golden Shore. Not... You know, they called it the Golden Orantes, not after the romanticized idea of Burma in the 17th century. That's what it was called, the Golden Shore. That's not what he meant. It was anything but golden there. Toward the end of his life, he wrote in his journal these words. I am not tired of my work, neither am I tired of the world. I will not leave Burma until the cross is planted here for good. Yet, 
When Christ calls me home, I shall go with gladness. He had his eyes the entire time on the real golden shore. He simply looked to eternal things. If that man could look at eternal things and go through all that he went through for 40 years, don't you think you can endure your trial of affliction for 4 or 10 or 15? Number one, a lesson of faith. The second thing you'll notice, number two, a lesson of fidelity. Here is the result, beloved, of of seeing by faith, of looking to glory. Verse 2 says, For by it, that is, by that kind of faith, the elders obtained a good report. That's the first part of the chapter. Look at the last part, verse 39. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith. Notice that again. Verse 2, a good report. Verse 39, a good report. That's the beginning and the ending of this chapter. In between the good report, all of those who obtained it by faith. You know, the Apostle Paul wasn't perfect. There were many times he said that he nearly fainted. He wanted to faint. In fact, were it not for other men like Titus and Epaphroditus who came along with smelling salts, if you will, with their encouragement, he would have fainted. Everybody wants to quit at times. And that's precisely why fidelity, why faithfulness is such a glory and a virtue. I thank God. I can't tell you I sit here on Sundays and Wednesdays and I look out and I see these aged saints in this room. I see men like Earl Weeks, Brother Wooster, Priscilla. I look out here and I see these people and I thank God for them because every day they show all of us what it means not to quit. There are people in here who've been saved for 60, 70 years, saved that long. And you know, beloved, they've seen it all wars, poverty, disappointment, and loss. And though their body is worn and it's tired, Their love and their faith in Christ is deeper and stronger than it was when they were 15 years of age. Man, that blesses me. These pews are filled to the brim every Christmas and every Easter with Christians who you never see all year long. And I'll tell you why for many of them. Because they had a bump in the road once. Somebody mistreated them 40 years ago in church. Some preacher messed up. Some deacon lied to them. And because their eyes were in the wrong place, their heart was in the wrong place. There are Christians all over this town and this county that I run into. And you know what? They are bitter at God for some sickness or some death or disease or financial loss. And many of them living now under the chastening hand of God, not realizing that had they been looking at eternity, had they been doing that all along, they'd still be living for eternity. We mentioned Moses. Endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses looked at what he couldn't see with his eyes. All along, he was looking at the real golden shore. It's a lesson of fidelity. May God find us faithful. It's a lesson of faith. And then finally, number three, there's also a lesson of finality. 
Look at verse 10 again, would you? For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Paul talked about a house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. As we noted, he mentioned that all these things, all these things shall be dissolved. You know, you young couples in here, you teenagers in here, I want you to think about the fact that everything that you see with your eyes, the Bible says eventually is going to dissolve. Just dissolve. Everything, including everything that's bad. Poverty will dissolve. The Bible tells us that pain and sickness dissolved. Every football stadium you noticed on TV yesterday, gone, dissolved. Every capital building and monument to men. So that I say this morning, I spy something gold. I spy something with a letter G. Glory, golden streets, God's throne, and God the Son. Chapter 12, you'll notice, of Hebrews begins with the word wherefore. See that? Wherefore. So don't think there's a big important division between 11 and 12 it's a continuation wherefore tells us is actually the conclusion of all the seeing that we read about in chapter 11 wherefore what's it say seeing all this what what well verse 2 looking looking unto jesus that's it there's what you see and there's what you look at what you look toward it's what you see by faith. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? Well, there's life for a look at the Savior, and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Turn off Fox News. Turn off NMSNBC if you ever had it on in the first place. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Our heads are bowed, please, and our eyes are closed for just a moment. I, I prayed at the beginning of the message that only the Lord knew the hearts and the needs of everyone here. Most of you in this room are, are believers. You've accepted Christ as Savior and Lord, and you're saved, and you know it by God's grace. But not everybody. For those who are saved and your sins are forgiven and your name's in heaven, God has a message for you. There's a way that believers are supposed to live their lives in this world, and it's by faith. And it's by looking, looking at eternal things, not temporal things. You, know, you think of this young man who was dying in that room next to Adonai Judson. What a difference between how he went into eternity and Adonai Judson who said, when Christ calls me home, I'll be glad to go. What a difference. Maybe you're at home, you're not saved. Get on your knees right there and accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. Confess your sins. Recognize that you're lost and there's no hope of salvation outside of Jesus. Father, bless now the invitation. We thank you for your word. As we said earlier, we need it today. We always need it. We live in a world of distractions, disappointments, dirt. But we serve a God of glory. And as believers, we are going somewhere. Help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus to look 
by faith, full into his face. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Help us to do as he was our example in his own life. Bless these of Astra Prayer, Lord, please, in Jesus' precious name, amen. On behalf of everyone at Beacon Baptist Church, we thank you for joining us today. Our prayer is that your heart and life has been impacted through the biblical truths of this message. If you have questions or would like more information, please contact us through our website at beaconbaptistchurch.org. That's beaconbaptistchurch.org. May the Lord bless you.